Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today I am happy to have back a frequent guest on the Deep Dives podcast, and we are here to do a very special kind of draft. So in honor of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania coming out later this week, we of course had to do a multiverse-related item here. So I'm here with Stephen Gillespie to cover his recent lock draft article. Stephen, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing great, Nick. It's uh, it's Valentine's Day. And other than my wife, I can't think of anybody else I would rather spend Valentine's Day with than you, man. So I'm happy that we get this uh, intimate time together. We're covering like a mock draft multiverse. And I am going to go see Quantumania on Friday. Are you going to go check it out? I am probably going to see it on Friday if I don't get an advance ticket on Thursday. That is way too much pressure, I just got to say, to put me under, to, to, to hey, put man. me behind your wife the in the Valentine's Day rankings. That's way too much pressure. I'm sorry. The, peop- the people want to know. They're interested in our personal lives, and we have to be open with our audience. So I just had to tell them how it felt, man. Well, that's a, that's a big problem for me, but I'm <laughs> sure I'll figure it out at some point. Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get it together. This we'll time. figure it out. So... You know, I sort of led in with the very basic overview of what you did here for this article. But as you basically said in the article, you know, this is an idea to just have a bit of fun with it. You know, there's a lot of prospect scouting going on this kind of this time of year. And, you know, people can start to get bogged down a bit in it. But instead, you're having a little fun with this lock draft idea. So I'm going to let you introduce what you did here what was your concept here for this lock draft that you did over on NoSealingsNBA.com? Well, so Nick, we had a we had you know the reason we have such a deep bench is because people can get bogged down during this time of year, and uh, you know stepped in uh, for for Albert who was kind of sharing that kind of same concept. And Albert's a, a strong man, dude, because he was speaking on something that I was personally feeling, but I'm also the type of dude to want to say all right, you know, a hole needs to be filled. I've been trained, you know, military trained for like 13, 14 years to, if there's a hole, got to fill it. And I was like, all right, this gives me an opportunity to do something fun. So I kind of spoke to the grind at this part of the year. And one thing that always helps me, Nick, whenever I get to this spot in the season, and it's just like the mundane, all right, let's pick a prospect. Let's watch the film. Let's evaluate him. Let's give the rank and breakdown and all that stuff is I just like to look at things through a different lens. And I I don't know what it was, maybe divine intervention that spoke to me <laughs> and said, hey, let's uh do a mock draft. But instead of doing just a basic mock draft, go off of how positions were drafted off the previous year. And that could be a fun way to do a lot of things in comparison between last year's draft and this year's and or this upcoming draft. And I learned a lot through the process, man. And ultimately, the main goal was just to have fun. But it was cool to come away with some of the nuggets that I did. I don't quite have the military training side of when you see a hole, fill it, but I definitely follow that ethos. I've yeah. definitely done a few of those myself over at NoSealingsNBA.com, so I totally, totally get where you're coming from. But 
I think the important point, I mean, all important points, obviously, but, you know, I think the key here, as you mentioned, is let's just have a little fun with it. You know, this is something very different, yet also I thought, you know, when I was editing the piece, it's a very fascinating way to sort of look at the differences between this year's draft and last year's draft in terms of, you know, what kind of players we're talking about, right? And it was, you know, interesting the further we get in this lock draft to sort of see, all right, what were the strengths of last year's draft compared to this year's draft, you know, as far as we see it with, you know, two thirds of the first NBA season underway for the draft class last year and not even getting to the NBA yet, obviously for this year's draft class, but Mm -hmm. it was fascinating for me to sort of see how these classes stack up in terms of their strengths and weaknesses. And let's start by starting with the number one overall pick. So yeah, Last year, I think we were all a bit surprised that Paula Boncaro ended up being the pick for the Magic there. I was on a live stream at the time, so if anyone wants to see my shocked face, you can go back and find that in the Ceilings archives. But Paula Boncaro being the number one pick led to a very interesting selection on your lock draft at number one overall you went with Jairus Walker, and yeah. Jairus Walker is someone who's been getting a lot of love from the No Ceilings crew over the past few weeks. This is interesting to me, first, because I don't think anyone really expects Jairus Walker to go number one overall in the upcoming draft, but also that there's a debate that we're going to have here that we probably will also have two picks from now, but I have Jairus Walker in my top five, but he's not the highest rated forward on my board. So why did you go with Jairus here as the Apollo replacement rather than, spoiler alert, the guy who I would have as the highest rated forward in this class in Brandon Miller? Well, so when I looked at this, like, yes, they both play the forward spot. But if you look at the way that Apollo played, and I didn't even necessarily follow this role throughout the thing, because ultimately, again, the the goal was to have fun. But (laughs) I didn't want to miss an opportunity to look at some of the similarities when stacking uh, Jairus Walker and Paulo Boncaro next to each other. If you look, Brandon Miller is probably going to be more more capable of playing the two if he scales up multiple positions than, let's say, the five in the NBA. Whereas Jairus Walker can give you looks probably at the three due to his floor spacing and playmaking and his defensive ability. Obviously, being able to play the floor, or excuse me, the four, like he, how he is right now at Houston, And they give you some small ball five looks similar to what we saw in Paolo Boncaro. Now, as much of a playmaker as Jairus can be, kind of like as a DHO, elbow operator, mid-post, things like that, he's not going to be able to take many people off of the bounce similar to what Paolo is. So Brandon Miller is probably more comparable in that area. But when I'm looking at, you know, body types, when I'm looking at strength, when I'm looking at that bully ball mentality that Paolo Boncaro has, and I'm looking at that how he was selected number one, to me, there was just more similarities to a Jairus Walker for that number one spot based on what happened last season than, let's say, Brandon Miller. I do have Brandon Miller ranked higher personally, but by one spot. So plenty of time for my mind to change. So up next, speaking of players who we can compare physically, you have Victor Wamanyama, who, you know, at this point seems pretty clear is going to be the number one pick in this upcoming draft. And you have him in basically the Chet Holmgren slot here. And, you know, granted Victor has three inches or so on Chet, but I think the idea behind the evaluation is, you know, pretty similar. As you mentioned, they both have very good ball skills for their size and they both have absolutely game breaking defensive potential. Yeah. And I think too, that a lot of people have Victor Wimbanyama listed as big, right. And it's kind of hard to blame him when you consider that he's almost eight feet tall. 
So um, <laughs> it, it, it's pretty easy to have him labeled as a big. Me personally, I look at him more as like a wing forward type player, kind of similar to that of a Brandon Miller. But considering that consensus has him listed as a big, and you look at how skilled both of these players look to be positionally, you you mentioned the ball handling, the the playmaking, the shooting ability, and then the defense too. They're both kind of floor benders on both sides of the ball in that aspect. And one, I think that they they have a lot of you know similarities in that they're they're thinner uh, for their position too, but it doesn't look like it deters either of them from being able to be very good at what they do. And then where this might be the the rookie of the year race next year, considering <laughs> that Chet is just out of the picture for this season. So he's going to get that Joel and B treatment, hopefully not the, the Ben Simmons one where he's rookie of the year contender for three straight years. Right. But oh. yeah, no, shout out Ben Simmons. I love you for <laughs> real, but it, ultimately they're both just very skilled for their size. And I just think that there was a lot of similarities, you know, physically when comparing them. So it was just fun to lay them side by side next to each other. And obviously you know, Victor is going to go number one this year, despite how I feel about Scoot Anderson. But, you know, there was a real case for Chet to go number one last season. That's certainly a case that I would have made and certainly a case that multiple people at No Ceilings would have made. Up next at third overall, you have Brandon Miller from Alabama, who we've already touched on. This is where he is on my board at number three. I finally, finally bit the bullet and moved (laughs) Nick Smith down just a touch. But so... Brandon Miller is two slots ahead of Jairus Walker for me. So three and five for those of you who are good at math. But the interesting comparison here between Brandon Miller and Jabari Smith Jr. is I think something that you already, you know, touched on a little bit in the idea that Brandon Miller seems like more of a wing rather than a forward, whereas Jabari Smith is like he's a four or five and he's not someone who you're likely to put at the three. So there's a bit of a difference there on that front. You know, I think the other thing is that the main calling card for Jabari on the offensive end was his shooting. That's Mm -hmm. clearly the main calling card for Brandon Miller as well. Although Miller has really upped his scoring inside the arc recently in a way that I think makes, makes it easier for me to, you know, see him being more successful in his rookie year than Jabari Smith has been so far in here's. Yeah, and I think, too, that defensively Jabari Smith Jr. was looked at to be as a lockdown guy, and he he certainly still talks about himself that way in the NBA. It's just it's a different style of game, offense, reign supreme within that league. But I think if you look at both of them collegially, like Jabari, I would say probably stands out a little bit more because he was just more adept to more physical play within the paint, whereas Brandon Miller is a little bit more slight of frame. I don't think that that's going to be an issue you know, when he actually gets an offseason in NBA class facilities, things of that nature to put on a little bit of weight. That's going to cover up a lot of the deficiencies that we're seeing in his game right now. But he's still showing in-season improvement as a uh, in-the-paint finisher. That was something that we still had questions on Jabari Smith Jr. whenever he eventually declared and was drafted in the NBA, right? So both of them excellent floor spacers, both of them uh, versatile positionally. It's just that with the handle and the potential pick and roll playmaking that Brandon Miller has at his position, that does let him be able to scale up. Like I said, um, similar to like a Franz Wagner being able to play multiple positions along the perimeter and being able to help out a team in a lot of ways, similar to what Jabari Smith is doing in Houston, albeit within a different capacity. Up next at number four is Cam Whitmore. And I think Cam Whitmore going number four is actually pretty indicative of the difference between these two draft classes. Spoiler alert, we're going to get to someone at number five who 
if you were, you know, doing an actual 2023 NBA draft, this player would not end up going number five. But, you know, it's interesting to me that we're already at the third forward. And, you know, given how you look at Victor Wembanyama, arguably the fourth forward, you know, in the first four picks, it's very interesting to see sort of how that stacks up against last year's draft. Yeah, and I, again, I mentioned that multiple times in the article, just how different this class is um, positionally when you look at the depth. But Cam Whitmore, comparing him to Keegan Murray, was actually pretty, uh, pretty fun exercise when you consider that one was a fully mature prospect and the other one as enticing as he is, has a lot of significant holes in his game, but has that ceiling that a lot of people question whether or not Keegan Murray has. So it was fun to kind of stack those two up next to each other and compare their outlooks. Up next at number five, and I'm just going to lead off with how you lead off for this. There is no multiverse that I can conceptualize where Scoot falls to five. Yes, agreed. Scoot Henderson is not going to fall to five in the 2023 NBA draft. But, you know, again, it's very interesting that the first, you know, guard we get is Jaden Ivey, who I had at third on my board last year. You know, again, it's very indicative of how much bigger I think last year's draft was, you know, literally bigger not bigger in terms of you know i'm projecting better outcomes for that draft class but bigger just in the sense that you know we're getting three forwards in a center essentially in the first four picks it takes till five till we get a guard but scoot henderson is spectacular and clearly was going to be the first guard taken off the board in this draft yeah and i mean there's some athletic carryover between scoot and Jaden, but i feel like scoot is a little bit better at uh, shifting gears whereas uh ivy was more of like a straight line athlete but we're seeing him get more accustomed to the NBA. Like you mentioned, though, about like the guards and the and the forwards and centers, it it's just weird. And I, I even think thinking back to last year, how much I felt like there wasn't as many talented big men. But you look and see what's going on with the rookies that we have in this class. It's just funny to kind of think back to that spot and, and, and the feelings that I had about the depth at the big man position. At number six, we've got another guard coming off the board to match Benedict Matherin from last year. And you have Keontae George, which it's interesting because this is the case with Brandon Miller. And here we are again. I have Keontae George sixth on my board and he ends up sixth here. So, yeah, I think it's pretty clear that he's established himself as almost certainly the second guard to go off the board in this draft. Granted, I have Nick Smith Jr. higher, but maybe that's mm-hmm. just something I need to adjust. But, you know, even so, Keontae George is someone who's competed for a top five spot all season and I would not be surprised if he ends up going in the top five on draft night, even though I just recently bumped him outside of my personal top five. Well, it's funny, too, that I loved Benedict Matherin all pretty much like throughout the entire draft class. And now it's starting to feel like Keontae George is getting a little bit more uh, nitpicked within the draft community now, similar to that of what Benedict Matherin went through last season. I just love both of them athletically, and I think it's going to help. that's going to help them in particular on the defense leveling up but george is a little bit more developed i think of a facilitator between the two of them and up next at number seven an interesting debate where i side with you on this particular one it'll be curious to see the general draft consensus on this but you have a sar thompson ahead of amen thompson and i have the same and you have him matched with shade and sharp here and i think that's just almost as good of a comparison as we're going to get in terms of, you know, players with ridiculous athletic gifts where we're not entirely sold on the level of competition that they were facing in their most recent playing experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least Asar has a level of competition where Shadon yes. was just essentially just redshirted a uh, high school player, right. Um, coming in and you just had to buy on the tools where Asar 
you're still getting the full exposure of the tools, but you question how to adequately assess them. So a lot of carryover in the in the mystique between both of those players. But Asar went ahead of Amin because I view Asar more as a wing, whereas Amin I look more as like a lead guard. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. I think that Asar is probably going to be his best at the NBA level if he's you know at two or three. Whereas with Amin, I mean. I don't know. There's a lot of developmental areas for him, but the biggest yeah. thing is just his playmaking and his ability on the ball. And, you know, Asar's actually shown a lot more on the ball, you know, recently rather than sort of early on in the OTE run for him. But I don't think he's quite at the same level as, uh, as his twin brother, where it's fascinating because it seems like Asar has really solidified his floor at this point. Whereas with Amen, there's, you know, I think maybe a higher ceiling, but you know, a lot lower floor, especially given how they've struggled both to finish around the rim and also to shoot from distance. Yeah, that's totally fair. And then that, that leads us to our eight spot where I think a lot of questions about Dyson Daniels were asked in that same manner during the first part of his season um, for the G league at night. And he really took off in the second half of the year. So there's still plenty of time for him in to kind of turn some heads. But if you look at the combination of size and feel and passing ability, there's a lot of carryover between the two of them, but I view Dyson Daniels more as a ready-made defender, whereas I mean Thompson has the tools to be one, but he kind of is like more of a risk-reward type defender, whereas Dyson is just like, I'm going to pick you up and not let you go. Yeah, I mean, Dyson showed it in the G League, and Amen has shown tools in OTE, but, you know, it's yeah. different, you know, showing tools in OTE versus, you know, actually, you know, succeeding on the floor as a defensive menace in the G league playing against professional players. Right. I mean, you're, you know, when you're playing against other G leaguers, you're not playing against, you know, a lot of, it's unfair and reductive to say that I'm in an are just playing against a bunch of high schoolers. But I mean, in comparison yeah. to playing against, you know, professional athletes like Dyson was in the G league, I don't know. I mean, you know, obviously the people in OTE are professionals. That's part of the appeal of OTE, but it's a different league from the G League Ignite. And I totally agree with you. There's a difference between, you know, the tools that Amen has shown versus the actual production that we saw from Dyson Jangles at the G League level. But let's now move on to another comparison that I found really interesting. You have Gigi Jackson as the stand-in for Jeremy Sohan here. And... I don't know. It's it's strange because they have such different games and they have such different sort of, you know, paths to success in my mind. But I mean, if we're talking about forwards that you're taking an upside swing on, I mean, that's what Sohan was last year. and That's what Gigi Jackson would be this year. Yeah, I mean, one of them is more developed on the offensive side of the ball, I would say, in Gigi Jackson, where he could kind of take you off the dribble and is more of like an isolationist. A specialist where Jeremy Sohan was more of like that connective piece on the offensive end, but was such a disruptor defensively. And if we have any questions about Gigi, they're about connection on offense and they're about disruption on defense, right? So um, two polar opposite guys, but I would say that both of them have oodles of potential for their respective positions whenever you're looking to draft them uh, for them to play for competing at the next level. And wrapping up the top 10 here, I have to say, if this was anyone else writing this article, I would be a bit upset and or offended that you're making a Nick Smith Jr. comparison to Johnny Davis. But I know that you're not out to get Nick Smith Jr., certainly. So I'm not going to. Yeah. If it were someone else, I might have questions about why you were that unnecessarily cruel to Nick Smith Jr. But hey, I mean, it's still so early in Johnny Davis's career. You know, it's like. It's unfair to judge players, you know, 
honestly, based on their first two years in the league, but certainly based on the first two thirds of their rookie season when they're not getting all that much playing time. But I, I get the comparison in the sense that Nick Smith Jr. is really, I mean, a lot of the appeal for him is that he's someone you could play at either guard slot. He's someone yeah. who I really buy into the playmaking with him, certainly a lot more than I did with Johnny Davis, even though I admittedly had Johnny Davis higher on my board than 10th. So, you know, I certainly am one of the people that will have to take a mea culpa on Johnny Davis if he continues to play this way for, you know, the next two, three years of his career. But you know, you mentioned that a big divergence between these two is health, where Johnny Davis, yeah. you know, played through injury down the stretch last season, whereas Nick Smith Jr. is just returning from his injury to play for Arkansas. And, yeah. you know, his first game, he didn't knock down that many shots, but I thought he looked pretty good on the defensive end, especially for someone who just came back from an extended absence. Absolutely. So we'll see how the luck continues, but it's entirely possible that. Nick Smith Jr. could have his stock jump up for other people. I mean, he's not going to jump that much higher on my board, but you know, him sort of getting back into the mix might be a good opportunity for him to boost his personal stock higher. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, someone had to get drafted to the, in the in the spot that probably is the most criticized among last year's draft class. But I'm still buying Johnny Davis stock. I mean, if anybody wants to give it to me, I'll take it. Uh, well, I, just, I think I'm not going to be the one to sell it to you, but okay. I'm just putting a you know public broadcast here, um, but in, in all honesty, like both are good on both sides of the ball. We we talked about their ability to pick up, you know, on either guard spot and defend adequately at either one of those guard spots. It's just really hard for anybody to be compared to Johnny Davis at this point. But I really I, I liked him last year and I like Nick Smith this year. So hopefully the the return off of the injury um, helps boost the stock a little bit more. But I mean. You, you, nothing wrong with being drafted number 10 overall in this year's draft class. Nothing at all. All right, we are going to take a quick break here, and then we will be back with the rest of the first round. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus Okay, so at number 11 on your board, this is a pick that we might have to discuss a lot because you have Taylor Hendricks here at 11th overall. And I feel like I've been slower on buying into Taylor Hendricks than a lot of the rest of the No Ceilings crew. And I don't know why, because he's the kind of player that I tend to buy into a lot as, you know, 6'10 guy who can shoot. I think part of it is that I'm not so sure about what he does with the ball in his hands if he's not shooting. 
Yeah. And, you know, that's a pretty big difference between him and the player who did end up going 11th overall last year in Usman Jang. And as you say, you were very out on Jang for the majority of last season. So was I. And basically, you know, a little bit into 2022, there were multiple people on the No Ceilings crew who were saying, hey, you need to watch the recent Usman Jang film. Yep. It's a lot different than the earlier Usman Jang film. And I admit I was resistant for a long time. And then when I finally circled back to it, it's like, wow, this guy is a lot more than the, you know, maybe falling out of the top 60 kind of player that he was through the first half of the season. That's not the deal with Taylor Hendricks. He's been impressive from day one at Mm -hmm. UCF. But again, I'm slightly lower on him, I think, than the rest of the No Ceilings crew. So why don't you sell me on why you have him this high in the lock draft? Well, I just think that, you know, one, there's the opportunity for youth to improve throughout the season, uh, particularly at their size. And, you're you're uh, referring to Usman Jang, not my evaluation skills, right? Just just uh, checking. I don't know. I'm just specifically for Usman Jang and then Taylor Hendricks. You know, that was kind of the big lesson learned that I took away in my evaluation on on Jang last year because I was so out on him. And then, you know, I had someone that I, who I really trust their opinion reach out to me and say, hey, man, like you really need to go check him out and give him a shot. And here's why. And I'm glad that I listened because going back and reading on him and, and and watching his film, there's a lot to like. And, you know, there's not a lot of carryover between Hendricks and Zhang as far as skill set because Zhang was much more of an on-ball guy. But I still think that Hendricks shows the potential to improve in that area while also having an NBA-ready uh, three-point shot. And he has good cutting ability and can finish around the rim when he improves his strength, kind of similar to how I was talking about Brandon Miller earlier. It's going to shore up a lot of the deficiencies in his game. And he is a ready-made weak side rim protector, right? Rim protector. So I think that, you know, at his size, at his position, being able to block shots, shoot threes, like there's no shortage of or holes to fill in the NBA, being able to do both of those things at a high clip. So up next, we have an irreplaceable slot. We are going from friend of the program, Jalen Williams, to anyone else. It's, you know, obviously going to be a downgrade from Jalen Williams to anyone else. But we instead here, you have someone who is sort of a friend of the program in the sense that we've been just shoveling out propaganda about Jet Howard all season long. So, you know, not quite a friend of the program in the same way that Jalen Williams is. But in terms of the amount love of to have you on the show, you said. Jeff. Yes, Love Jet, that. if you are listening to this episode of the No Ceilings NBA podcast, you are welcome anytime that you would like to be my guest for the next Home and Away segment. And I guess probably I should let Stephen go first, seeing as this is his article, but whatever. Anyway, the idea here being that Jet Howard was someone who was not talked about in this range of the draft heading into the season. And now, honestly, 12 is lower than where I have him on my board. Same. So he's someone who's made it rapid ascension to the top of the draft conversation yeah and it's so hard to find um not only just a wing that i can plug into the slot draft because that's the position that was drafted at 12 last year but it is find someone who is unique and had such a you know a torrent rise um close to close to the draft like Jalen williams had but jet howard is uh, no secret um no small name within this draft class and i think in my last rendition on my board i have him at number nine so um, just an absolute frame flamethrower, um, capable ball handler, just a little bit less stronger of a defender than Brandon Williams, which is why I have him lower, even though there's kind of similar skill set there. And it would be nice if he could, you know, get some rebounds. But I I know that, you know, Michigan isn't really asking him to do that that much. Speaking of it'd be nice if he could get some rebounds, let's move on to number 13 on the board where 
you have Derek Lively, and this is very indicative of the difference between last year's draft yes. and this year's draft. I mean, there are <laughs> there is certainly one center prospect who I would have ahead of Derek Lively, and we'll get to him in a moment. But I think it, you know, again, it says a lot about the particular areas of depth in these two classes that you go directly from Jet Howard at 12 to Derek Lively at 13 to yeah. match the position of last year's draft. But, and you then know, comparing him next to Jalen Duran, who is yes. killing it right now in the NBA. And we have so many questions about Derek Lively. Yes, but the flip side is that the one question that we don't really have about Derek Lively at this point is something that Jalen Duran was very good at in stretches during his college career, which is sending back shots the way they came. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I think the other night that Derek Lively had uh, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s uh, record keeper whenever he almost got a triple-double in blocks. But, you know, there's some there's some similarities between these two guys just in a situation where it's not an ideal fit. But I would say that Jalen Duran did a better job at taking advantage of, advantages of the opportunities that he could control, where Derek Lively, in some regards to his game, has done the same thing, but um, really hasn't been a contributor on the offensive side of the ball that often. Uh, it's been r- very rare, whereas Jalen Duran was uh, a threat to rise over anybody that was lined up against him. And that just has to do with the, the physical stature that he had as well, where Derek Lively is taller, but I would dare say nowhere near as strong. Up next, you said that you didn't do this on purpose, but it is a bit suspect <laughs> when you put Grady Dick right in the Oshai Baji slot from last season. Yeah. The thing is, though, I don't know. I mean, Grady Dick has been a lot better defensively than I thought he would be. I don't mm-hmm. think it's fair to say he's shown quite the promise that Oshai did on the defensive end, but the flip side is that Oshai Baji was someone who... Metcalf and I have been talking about since his freshman year, but who really grew as a shooter, who became someone who you could rely on as a shooter. Whereas with Grady Dick, that's the calling card from day one. Well, yeah. And there's such an inverse in that aspect. If you compare them both as freshmen where Ochai was um, well-seasoned upperclassman whenever he was drafted at the 14th spot um, in last year's draft class, whereas Grady Dick um, was a lotted three-point shooter and still had, I still had him ranked in my second round because was worried about how he was going to hold up physically and how he was going to compete. And man, was I wrong, you know, just going off of those preconceived notions. He's showing a lot of that warrior mentality that we saw from another former Jayhawk and uh, Christian Brown, who's displaying that same level of skill set in the NBA currently with the Nuggets. So um, Grady Dick, the fact that he's at 14 on this board in a comparable spot with Agbaji, who I loved last season, I believe I had him at like 10th or 11. So uh, Grady Dick, just the amount of improvement that he's gone through in season um, in all aspects of his game has been fun to watch. So up next at 15, you have Duran Holmes. And you mentioned at the start of the Duran Holmes blurb about how deep the big man crop was last year compared to this year. Mm-hmm. Now, I have Duran Holmes quite a bit higher on my board than Derek Lively. So that's kind of rude from my perspective. But OK, <laughs> whatever. We'll take it. That's, OK. But I mean... You know, you do point out that the comparison is with Mark Williams, and they're very different players, even though, you know, they're both pretty solid as slot shot blockers. But I mean, yeah. Deron Holmes has so much more diverse an offensive game than Mark Williams, who's really just mostly a play finisher at this point. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what kind of role Deron Holmes gets at the next level. You know, Mark Williams has spent a lot of time in the G League. I think that Deron 
maybe fits in as an end of the rotation guy more easily than Mark Williams, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, he might end up spending less time in the G league just because some team has him as their, you know, eighth or ninth man rather than Mark Williams, who got a little bit of G league seasoning in, but it is interesting. I am very much a believer in Duran Holmes, but even I don't have him 15th. So, you know, again, as you mentioned, that's a pretty clear sign of where the strengths are in this draft class as opposed to last year's draft class. Yeah. And again, I just, I can't believe that we thought last season's draft class was, was weak at the big man spot uh, relatively to, to, or a comparison to this one. And you're right that Holmes and Mark Williams are two different types of players, but you know, just in terms of big, if I had to take one at 15, that's where I'm entertaining a Darren Holmes because you mentioned he's a, a versatile offensive threat as well. Uh, he doesn't have the length or, or I would even dare say the uh, positional athleticism that Mark Williams shows. I mean, he runs the floor incredibly well, finishes very high, um, great athlete. Whereas Holmes, I would say that he's more of like a Robert Williams who in of himself is still a really good athlete, but a little bit more polished on the offensive end, capable playmaker. Um, you like the kind of shooting potential that Holmes looks like he wants to implement into his game where Mark Williams is a basically within arm's reach of the basket is where he's most comfortable unless he's setting a screen and rolling to the rim. Well, that is not the case for the player that you have up next or the player that you've compared him to. So at 16th, you have Max Lewis and last year at 16 was AJ Griffin out of Duke. This is, I think, one of the closest comparisons that you have in this lock draft in the sense that it's two, you know, six, 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 seven forwards who have serious defensive concerns, but are such spectacular shooters that it might not end up mattering. And given that AJ Griffin has already, you know, earned a starting slot for a significant portion of the season for Atlanta, clearly for him, the other concerns did not override the shooting and it may end up being the same for Max Lewis. I do at least have to note the defense because otherwise Tyler Metcalf would kill me if I did not note that Max Lewis is not the best defender, but again, the shooting might just be good enough that it doesn't matter as much, you know, in comparison to the rest of his game. Well, we had so many questions about how much of the perceived lack of athleticism and defensive capability that AJ Griffin showed at Duke last year was because of the severity of the injuries that he sustained. Whereas Max Lewis, it might just be because he's taken kind of an unconventional path to playing D1 basketball. It might just have to do with, you know, level of competition, um, exposure to the game, things of that nature. But both of them, stellar shooters. I mean, I I would say that Max Lewis had a a, a prettier form, but there was no arguing with the results that we saw from A.J. Griffin last season. And I think that Max Lewis has broken a few just like analytic – models right now just how efficient of a shooter that he's been from the majority of the season so at number 17 you mentioned that Tari Eason was the apple of your eye for much of the draft cycle so you know you're gonna struggle to compare him to anyone else but Noah Clowney is in a pretty similar boat for me actually with Taylor Hendricks in that I feel like I should probably have them higher than I do and that you know I know Clowney isn't quite the same in terms of the kind of prospect that I tend to fall for, whereas Taylor Hendricks is much more like that. But again, it's a very similar deal of, you know, decently heralded, but not highly heralded freshmen coming in and just dramatically outplaying a bunch of the players that were ahead of them in their high school class. Well, yeah, I mean, again, just to kind of harken back to what you were saying earlier, that Tari Eason is just it's hard for anybody to be compared to him in my eyes because I had him significantly higher than he was taken. I knew it was a steal by the uh, Houston Rockets. 
as soon as I selected him. But Noah Clowney is just such an interesting player because he's different, obviously. He's not um, as talented as a, a perimeter defender. I would even argue probably as a rim, as a rim, def- rim defender either. But what I do love about Noah Clowney is how much he is kind of tailor-made to be a four slash five in today's NBA where he can shoot, he can contest the, the rim very well on the defensive side. He crashes the glass. And I really love the way that Alabama utilizes his playmaking out of the short roll. I think it's a very mm-hmm. subtle and very under-discussed and underappreciated aspect of his game that if you're the, in the NBA as a big man and you could be trusted to put the ball on the deck for a dribble or two, and if you're not going to finish being able to make a smart read out of the, the middle of the floor where the defense is collapsing around you, it opens up so much offensively. Yeah, something that I talk about all the time on here is, you know, just being able to be a connector as someone who's not going to have the ball in their hands all the time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing a lot of the players who were really only one trick ponies. I mean, my usual examples here are, you know, the Troy Daniels is the world, right? Where if the only thing you can do is shoot and you can't, you know, put the ball on deck and try and get to the rim at least then it's going to be a lot easier to defend you than if you're someone who's more dynamic with the ball in their hands. And, you know, Clowney isn't exactly someone who you're going to be running the offense through regularly, but he's also someone who, you know, you're not screaming if he puts the ball on the deck, right? It's not like, it's not a terrible situation if he's doing that. That's something that he can do, you know, maybe not to the extreme levels, but, you know, good enough that he's not someone you can just sort of force off the line or force into a shot where, force him into a situation where he has to dribble the ball and he just can't do it. Absolutely. Up next, you have Jalen Hochefino out of Indiana. You mentioned that he's higher on your board. He's higher on my board. I do find interesting the comparison that you're making here between him and Dalen Terry. I think, you know, as you mentioned, first of all, the key is Jalen is much better with the ball in his hands. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think also, I mean, Dalen Terry, you know, up until like the last month or so of the season seemed pretty much like, okay, this is someone who's probably going to be going back to school. And, you know, he was a sophomore who barely played as a freshman, whereas with Jalen Hutchfino, he's starting as a freshman and, you know, being pretty significant part of that Indiana offense, you know, not their main scorer. That's going to be Trace Jackson Davis territory, but, you know, someone who is a key part of the offense, whereas Dalen Terry, you know, he got a chance down the stretch run of the season basically because Kirk Reza was injured yep. and he proved enough when he had that chance to, you know, become the 18th pick overall. But it is interesting in that they're, you know, six, six ish guys who are funky and can do stuff with the ball in their hands. But Dalen Terry was much more of a late riser. Whereas Jalen Hutchifino is someone who, you know, has basically just continued to prove his case consistently as the season goes on. But it was interesting, right? Whenever he, we had questions about his back that some outlets just mm, yeah. kept him off, off their board at all. Where you know, patting ourselves on the back here, you know, no ceilings was was quick to keep him, and uh, we're starting to see his name now enter, you know, dare dare we say top ten territory based on the production that we're seeing now. And and you're right, Dalen Terry was a late riser. Uh, Jalen Hood, uh, Shafino was a little bit of an early riser, and I would say a mid season riser. Now that we're uh, he's starting to just play with a, a, a fierce competitiveness. And I, I love the the maturity in his game, the tempo that he plays with. I like the same thing out of Dale and Terry. I mean, when you can couple uses and efficiency, the way that he did in a, in a, a, you know, large prominent role that Arizona gave him. I mean, both of these guys are playing on very talented teams with, you know, very talented guys. I just think that Jalen Hood being 18th in, in this draft again, points to 
the the variance and depth at different positions last year. So you have this player 20 slots too low, probably 22 slots too low for <laughs> Nathan Gribble's liking, but you did end up putting Bryce Sensible at 19th overall. And I find this fascinating because your comparison for him was another friend of the program, Jake LaRavia. Yep. And it's interesting because I felt like a lot of the reason I believed in Jake LaRavia was because of the defense and mm-hmm. I think the f- next time that Bryce Sensabaugh plays defense will be the first time that Bryce Sensabaugh has played defense this season. <laughs> I love that. That was well done. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But, you know, the flip side is that I feel very uncomfortable with evaluating Bryce Sensabaugh because I feel like I'm going to make the exact same mistake I made with Cam Thomas, where I ended up having him too low because my entire thing was, what does this dude do other than put up a ton of shots and some of them go in? And, you know, that's the kind of player that I tend to be out on more than most people, which is why I don't have Bryce at number negative one on my board like Nathan does. But, <laughs> you know, it's the kind of thing where I feel like I might get burned again because I might end up having him too low because that's, you know, what he does. And unlike Jake LaRavia, you know, his defense, there's a lot to be desired. Let's just put it that way. Well, what's funny is like on my board, and first off, shout out to Nathan. We always give him a hard time with Bryce. So even though I think that he's only the second highest uh, have him rank the second highest uh, within no ceilings, but it's just fun to throw it at Nathan. I actually think that I have Bryce at 19 without looking at my board. It's either 18 or 19. So I kind of have him similarly drafted in this draft as where I have him on my board. And I don't even know if calling him a forward or a similar player to Jake LaRavia is apt because I don't really know what to classify Bryce sensible as where he has like guard handling ability and sh- shooting potential. He's probably wing size, but plays like a forward and has the strength of a forward. He's kind of more like David Roddy if I had to compare him to anybody. Mm. But letting him fall to where <laughs> David Roddy was selected just seemed a little too unfair to what Bryce has done as an offensive player this year. But you're right, Jake LaRavia was a much better defender. But they're both extremely versatile. Speaking of much better defenders, you said this saddened you in the piece, and it saddens me too to see Cason Wallace falling all the way down to number 20. But... Again, you know, it's really a useful sort of indicator for the differences between this year's draft and last year's draft that someone as talented as Cason Wallace, who, you know, Rucker and Nathan repeatedly tried to find a way that was not the word safe to say that Cason Wallace is a safe pick. But I mean, he's someone who has such a high baseline level of skills that I find it incredibly unlikely that Cason Wallace has, you know, anything under than like a decade long career unless he gets hurt. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that Malachi Branham is the comparison here because Malachi Branham was someone who I was very high on early last season. And then everybody else kind of caught up to where I was on him to the point where a lot of people ended up liking him more than I did. But, you know, I had him going way ahead of where he ended up going at number 20. And if Casey Wallace ends up going number 20, I think whoever gets him will be very happy to get him that far down in the draft. But I felt kind of similarly with the Spurs getting Malachi Branham last season. So I guess they're similar in that front, even though with Kaysen, the calling card is the defense and with Malachi, the calling card is the scoring. Yeah. I think that Kaysen is closer to where I had Malachi on my big board last year, which was kind of like in the eight through 12 range. Um, And it's very, it's very possible that even though that I have both of them ranked that high, that both could go um, kind of lower in the draft this year uh, because the question with Wallace, even though he's a guard is, like how is he at organizing an offense where he might get a little bit of a 
little bit more grace from uh, NBA front offices because he's going to have that Kentucky tagline of, well, what wasn't he showing at Kentucky that right. he's capable of now, right? But even still, as a complimentary player, you're getting one of the best defensive playmakers, if not the best defensive playmaker in this entire draft class, along with a very reliable floor spacer. Up next at 21, you have Colby Jones going in the spot that Christian Brown went in last year. And you admit that you underrated what Christian Brown would bring to an NBA team. I certainly did as well. I did not have him as high as he ended up going in last year's draft. And I'm not quite as ready to say I was completely wrong as I was about Cam Thomas. You know, not the first time I've said I was completely wrong about Cam Thomas. But the idea here is very interesting in that ultimately it's two players who they are just so good in so many different areas that you feel like they're going to find a place in the NBA, you know, even if it's not like, okay, this guy is one of the best shooters I've ever seen, or, you know, this guy is one of the most ridiculous athletes I've ever seen. Right. It's like so good in so many different areas that you find it hard to see them not succeeding. And Colby Jones is someone who basically all season long, I've looked at my board and been like, why is he not higher? Why is he not higher? Why is he not higher? And he only recently climbed into my first round. And I feel like that was way too late to bump him into the first round. Cause it's just, it's so hard to see where he fails. You know, like I think the odds of him busting out of the league entirely are lower than, you know, anybody that's going to go within like five or 10 picks of him probably. Yeah. I mean, and it's hard to quantify hustle and competitiveness, right? Like we look at all these advanced metrics and we watch film and, it's just hard to put a number next to what Kobe Jones does. And it was the same thing with Christian Brown, where for Christian, I had him as a high second. And I felt like I was kind of being favorable in my grade because I I knew that he was going to try hard, right? But it was, what does he do actually in an NBA role where he goes to Denver and he's playing so well that he essentially made Bowden's Highlands expendable because of the role that he's giving him off or he's giving the Nuggets off the bench. I think it's going to be hard pressed for Kobe Jones not to do kind of a similar thing. Hopefully he doesn't cost, you know, someone a roster spot on this team or anything like that. But I mean, high effort, high, high character, high hustle guy. I liken him to that of a Josh Hart where he's going to defend so hard. And if he's a capable three point shooter, then you know that you're getting like a, a top eight, top nine rotation guy on your team. Up next at 22nd, you have Trace Jackson Davis and Man, he's someone who I have struggled with for years now yeah. because he's someone who I thought, okay, you know, seems like a pretty clear mid-second round guy last year. And this year he's just produced at an even higher level. And, you know, you mentioned the comparison to Walker Kessler here is the comparison where you had him as a second round pick, as did I, and he's making that look foolish. And I don't know, you know... <laughs> It's weird for me because I feel like that comparison makes me uncomfortable with having Trace Jackson Davis as a second round guy. Yeah. But the flip side is that, man, there's just so much talent in this class that it's really difficult for me to say that there are not 30 players that are better than Trace Jackson Davis. And yet I still have him as a second round guy. And I feel like the odds of me being wrong on that are pretty high, but I also feel like, you know, part of the comparison here is Trace Jackson Davis is an excellent shot blocker who finishes really well around the basket. And like, yes, I get that. But the flip side is Walker Kessler was 
putting up blocks at a historic rate last season. uh, Trace Jackson Davis is not quite at Kessler levels of historic block rates. And, you know, also the simple asinine comparison, Walker Kessler's 7-1 and Trace Jackson Davis is 6-9. And yet, I feel like I could feel very similar to how I feel about Walker Kessler now in a year about Trace Jackson Davis, where it's like, looking back at my board and be like, was I really that wrong about this guy? And maybe I was, but I feel like I might be a little more comfortable with being wrong about TJD than I was about being wrong about Walker Kessler, but I could see a very similar kind of regret coming out of my thought process in the year. Well, yeah. And I mean, again, I'm drafting based on position. I don't think that, you know, it's a one for one comp to have, you know, Trace Jackson Davis and Walker Kessler, but I feel like both are going to be kind of undervalued relative to their peers. I mean, obviously we we can talk about that now for Kessler, more projection in TJD's case, but I just think too that, um, you know, I've heard Corey talk about this quite a bit is that he's used in such an archaic way. But if you look at the athleticism, you look at the growth as a playmaker that he's undergone when he was prepping for the NBA's draft last year, um, was unable to compete, was able to take some of those guard skills with him to his final year in college basketball and be able to be a connector on the offensive end and, you know, get upwards of like six, seven, eight, nine assists in a game on top of rebounds and, and finishing in the paint. Um, he, to me and, and, and taking the deep dive on him, he's doing things that only like NBA players have done um, within their draft year. So it's just hard for me to not have him within the first round. Yeah. Again, it's like, I totally get that. And I do feel weird about the fact that he's not in my first round, but I also feel like there are guys who I have in my first round where if I am, if I miss on them, I'm more comfortable with that than saying, okay, I'm going to bump TJD ahead of this guy because I think maybe the lower end outcomes will be higher. But up next, you have the 23rd pick. And I think in my mind, definitely the clear front runner for weirdest pick of the first round last year in David Roddy. And As the replacement for him, you have someone who I think is similar to Colby Jones in that they're, I think, one of the safest players in this year's draft class, Chris Murray. And yeah. as you mentioned, Chris Murray is not unique in the same way that David Roddy is in terms of you know his shape and the way he plays the game. But Chris Murray, there's someone who looks literally exactly like him in the NBA playing for the Sacramento Kings. And you know, I think that's part of the argument here is in a way we've kind of already seen someone take the Chris Murray path in that, you know, as I wrote about in my sleeper deep dives article before the season, Chris Murray's development was basically just the exact same as Keegan's except a year behind, like, you know, Keegan's freshman year at Iowa was almost identical to Chris Murray's sophomore year at Iowa. And now Chris Murray's junior year at Iowa looks a whole heck of a lot like Keegan Murray's, you know, sophomore year at Iowa. And, Granted, they're you know different as prospects, which is why Chris Murray is going twenty three here, and Keegan Murray went fourth last year. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think it's a similar argument to Colby Jones in that it's very difficult for me to see Chris Murray not working out in some capacity. You know, at the very least, as like a end of the bench role player, I think there's a place for him on pretty much any NBA team. Well, yeah, and we see what happens in the NBA is that some of the best uh, role players in the NBA were just high usage, high efficiency, um, highly versatile weapons within their college system. And that's exactly what Chris Murray has done for Iowa. He is the team, right? Like everything stops and and finishes with him. And he's just so productive and and, in a similar way to what Keegan did last year. It's just that I think Keegan is more so that like interior based forward who can space the floor 
where I look at Chris Moore as like a perimeter-oriented player who is capable of finishing on the inside when he has to. Same thing on the defensive side. Yeah, that's totally fair. I just mean it's it's funny that, you know, David Roddy is someone who I didn't think had as clear of an NBA projection at all, whereas Chris Murray has... Anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris Murray has, like, a pretty clear projection in my mind. Anyway, a slightly more difficult projection is up next at 24, where you have Ryan Repair going in the Marjan Beauchamp slot, and... I think that's a very interesting comparison in the sense that there are questions about both of them offensively. There were heading into the draft. There continue to be, but just the energy that they play with on the defensive end is a very clear line to draw in my head and why it makes total sense to me that you have Ryan repair going here. Well, yeah. I mean, for Marjan, he was when we were, when we were waiting for Hardy to, to explode, um, as he progressed throughout the year, and, and for Dyson Daniels to grow as a shooter, Marjan Brochamp was the constant that helped mm-hmm. the Ignite out throughout his uh, year. And I think the same thing could be said for Rupert for the Breakers. And uh, he missed a lot of time um, with, due to injury, right? So um, he was a constant, obviously, when he was on the court, when he was available. And a lot of that has to do with just like the high effort, high hustle, high energy plays that he makes. Um, I think that he has an NBA frame. He has a capability of getting stronger, whereas Beauchamp was kind of a rock steady, rock solid guy coming into the draft. And I think that there's some on-ball juice for Rupert, similarly to how I felt about Marjan Beauchamp. So whereas Beauchamp is getting a little bit of run in the NBA, not as much as I would have liked to have seen so far, um, I think that Rupert might be on the same developmental path where he might get some, some spot minutes here or there. Um, but he has the, the potential in the ceiling to be a highly versatile weapon for whatever team is lucky enough to draft him. The next two picks here might be the two most indicative picks between the differences between this year's draft class and last year's draft class. Absolutely. So at 25th, you have Arkansas' own Anthony Black, and you have him as the Blake Wesley replacement of <laughs> – Blake Wesley was someone who I had arguments about last season. I'll just put it that way. But <laughs> with Anthony Black, I mean, I have him at 14 on my board right now. He's, you know, someone who I think will be, you know, pretty close to that range on draft night. And yet here he is at 25 just because this year's guard depth is so different than last year's. Yeah. And I mean, you're looking at two different types of athlete, whereas Wesley was more of explosive and uh, there's a lot of theory behind him, but a lot of that had to do with the, the guard defensive skills that he had um, still had a ways to go with the jump shot. Kind of sounds familiar with what we saw or what we're seeing right now from Anthony black ever since Maui, he's been kind of an on again, off again shooter, but Anthony is much less of a theory type of a prospect because he sees the floor incredibly well, can get the ball um, to teammates in a variety of ways and he kind of snakes defense a lot. He's a much more sure approach of getting to a basket, whereas Blake Wesley was just kind of juggernaut. You know, once he got momentum, it was hard for anyone to stop him to get to where he wanted to go. Yeah, I don't think uh, Blake Wesley and good court vision have been used in the same sentence as often as Anthony Black and good court vision. I think I think that's a diplomatic way of putting that. I think that that was a very PC way. Like you're on you're on your way to a, a, you know job and. Legislation. There we go. Diplomatic ish. Wow. My life has really gone off track if I get a job in legislation. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to number 26, someone who I had pretty much in this range of the draft 
last year and yeah. we'll probably end up having him in, you know, probably slightly higher, but around this range this year, Turquavion Smith, who, you know, he came into the year as an absolute flamethrower from long range that has stayed. What yeah. has been really huge for him this year is getting a little bit better around the basket. He's not, you know, He's not a Mike Miles level finisher around the rim by any stretch of the imagination, but he's in a much better place around the basket than he was last year. And you have him compared to Wendell Moore, who was someone who I wasn't as high on as some other people at no ceilings, but you know, someone who, you know, I certainly get the theory of Wendell Moore Jr. But I mean, I think that even the, lower end outcomes for Traquavion Smith are, you know, pretty, pretty positive in comparison to, again, someone who I get that other people were higher on than I was. But I mean, if we were talking about, you know, last year, if Traquavion had stayed in the draft, I'm pretty confident he's off the board before 26. And I think the odds are pretty good that he'll be off the board before 26 this year too. Well, yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that he sustained an injury that was kind of scary, but it looks like it's not going to slow him down much at all. Thankfully. Um, yeah, thank thank goodness. Um, Turk is just he's phenomenal. We talked about not only is he a shooter, but he's a tough shot maker. Like that's just such a different type of skill set than what we saw from Wendell Moore. Where I thought Wendell Moore was an NBA player last year because of his connective ability. Turquavion Smith could get drafted um, and be a six man of the year type of candidate. I said the same thing about Cam Thomas when he was drafted. I was just this guy is just tailor made to get buckets in a variety of ways. Um, has the athleticism, has the speed, has the burst, has the vision, um, offensive awareness to to get buckets. He understands also that he can find teammates in a little bit more of a, a, I would say, consistent manner this season than what he was doing his previous year where he had Darian Sebron kind of running the show in that regard. So mm-hmm. um, different type of role for him this year, but still succeeding in, in everything that's been asked of him. Up next at 27, the Nikola Jovic spot. You had to nail this one to make me happy. And I mean, uh, Kyle Filipowski, I get it. <laughs> I get the comparison. The difference they're white, in. They're big. Yeah. The difference in passing and playmaking is, you know, why I'm, I'm, I'm trying to maintain self control. You know, the yeah. Kyle Filipowski court vision compared to the Nikola Jovic uh, court vision. Don't think it, don't think it quite stacks up personally. There but is no way I could make you happy with this pick, man. Like, there's there's no way anyone was going to make me happy for this pick unless <laughs> you put like the other Nikola Yo in here. That that might have that might have done it. That one I might have taken. No, but okay. but on a more serious note, I mean, Kyle Filipowski is I don't know. He's interesting to evaluate because the stuff that works for him is really fascinating when it works. Yeah. The stuff that doesn't work is really concerning when it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, he just. It's hard to, I think, assess how guys are doing at Duke this year because, you know, there's inconsistency on who's been available, who's playing, um, who, what role does each player have. I think that varies on a nightly basis. And I think Filipowski started the season off hot. And I think it's going to be really easy for people to look at his recent play and try to knock him down a few pegs. I've even done it myself. But I think that we need to remember the, scenario, the situation that he's in right now. And uh, understand that at his size, the with the skill set that he has, it's hard to find a lot of people in the NBA that can do the same thing. And kind of felt similarly to Nikola Jovic last season, right? Like being 6'10", being able to shoot and play make the way that he did. 
and still have some interior strength. It's it, it was a hard skill set to find, and that's why he ended up being a first round pick. Speaking of the really weird situation at Duke this season, let's move on to twenty eight, where you have Derek Whitehead. Now, I am willing to bet that if you had put Derek Whitehead twenty eighth on your board, say four months ago, yeah, you'd be getting a lot of sideways looks, and that's. Be on- I'll probably get fired from no ceilings. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think there are some people who, anyway, moving on. Um, the idea here, I have Derek Whitehead much higher than this still on my board. And it's really at this point, just a lot of the high school tape combined with, he's had awful injury luck this year combined with it's weird to tell what's going on at Duke with any prospect right now. But mm. You know, the player that was taking 28 last year was someone who, you know, similarly, if heading into the season, you'd had that guy at 28th on your board, you would have been looked at as a crazy person. But that's where Patrick Baldwin Jr. ended up falling. And I think, you know, the primary difference really is Derek hasn't had as much time on the court as Patrick Baldwin has, which I think helps his stock because... There's nothing that Patrick Baldwin Jr. did on the floor last year at UW Milwaukee that helped his <laughs> draft stock. I think that's a also a you know PC ish way of putting that. But it's mm-hmm. interesting in that if you're going off high school tape, both of those guys would be top five picks pretty much without question. If you're going off college tape, they have to fall further down. But I'm with you in that ultimately it's really hard to have Whitehead falling out of the first round of this year's draft, just as it was you know, something that the Golden State Warriors refused to allow to happen last year with Patrick Baldwin Jr. You know, he two spots ahead of falling out of the first round, but, you know, not actually falling out of the first round. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's going to be a team that's in a similar spot to what Golden State did last year where they had multiple picks and they could afford to take a risk, right, on mm-hmm. someone who highly lauded coming into the season um, due to maybe some circumstances that were out of their control, uh, saw their sock take a hit, but... I mean, you have to take into account if there's anything that we've learned over the past couple of draft classes, Nick, is that you have to take into account your high school film. You can't get lazy and just base it off of a kid, you you know, one kid's one season in college basketball. We have to take into account situation. We have to take into account the injury. You know, is there anything that if Whitehead comes back and is able to show, is there anything that we're going to really be able to take away from it? Because these lower body injuries, it's, often takes Nick I always give it like a two-year rule before I start taking into account like okay maybe this is what this player is going to look like we're not going to be afforded that opportunity when we scout them so this is going to be one of the tougher evaluations to nail down based off of roster composition and based on just injury um, unluckiness that he sustained this year well, thankfully, the sample size of tape is much larger for the prospect that you have up next at 29. So in the slot of Ty Ty Washington Jr., a guard taken by the Houston Rockets, you have a guard playing for the Houston Cougars, Marcus Sasser. And he's someone who's been a no-ceilings favorite for a while. He's someone who you know, was in a lot of first rounds even last year. And yeah. this year... You know, I think he's, I don't know, he's had some up and down moments at Houston, but I mean, ultimately, I think that him going at 29 would be a pretty good pick if he ends up going there. I have him higher than that on my board, but it is funny to me that the Houston Rockets guard pick is compared to the Houston guard here in Sasser. Yeah, and I mean, it's kind of 
easy to see him transitioning to the NBA based on his, you know, skill set that he has now. You know, it's an undersized guard, so he's ideally going to be on a team with a jumbo creator and who can be just a reliable kickout option and uh, just a feisty point of attack defender. That's not the case of what we saw for Ty Ty Washington last year. Much more of a pick and roll oriented type of guard, snake his way into a defense, uh, probably pull up or hit a floater or two. And then defensively, you just wanted to see some, you know, good effort on that side. So different type of prospect. I could definitely see them both going in a similar range, though. And finally, at number 30, where Peyton Watson was drafted last year, you have one of my favorites in this year's draft class, someone who you may be fed up with me campaigning for at this point after our latest round of No Ceilings mock drafts, but you have Jillian Phillips out of Tennessee at 30th here, and he's been exceptional on the defensive end. I think I buy into his offense a lot more than most people. He's... I don't know, his shooting numbers aren't fantastic, but they're certainly much better than they were early in the year, which is, you know, a positive sign for him. And I think that if Julian Phillips ends up going 30th in this upcoming draft, that whatever team takes him there will be very happy with what they've gotten. But, you know, the guy you've compared him to in Peyton Watson, it's similar in that, you know, they were pretty highly regarded high school prospects, you know, Watson was like a top five, top 10 guy. Julian Phillips, if I'm remembering correctly, was 14th. Yeah. 14th in his uh, RSCI rankings for his high school class. And, you know, I don't think he's going to end up going in the lottery. So, you know, slight fall, I guess, from that, you know, 14th in his class. But first of all, you know, the obvious point, there's a lot more high school classes being involved here than just last year's class. when we're talking about the draft, but the other thing being, that, you know, with Watson, a lot of the struggles were just because he didn't get on the court. That's not quite the case for Phillips. But, you know, I think the idea being that if you bought into both of their shots coming around in the longer term, then you were getting hyper-athletic prospects who were exceptional high school talents who showed a lot on defense, you know, I think more for Phillips than for Watson, but showed a lot on defense but didn't quite get the offense together enough to end up going higher than 30th. Well, yeah, for Watson, there was a belief, Nick, that he could end up being kind of like a, a one of these jumbo creators, right? Like even though the shot didn't wasn't there, that he could be kind of an on-ball facilitator on top of being just a defensive X factor where Julian Phillips, you knew that he was a rock steady defender coming into this year, uh, committed to Tennessee. So that kind of tips the, tips the cap a little bit to that defensive side of the ball. And then he just has to improve on the offensive end. I'm starting to come around on him and liking him a lot more though, Nick, because yeah. I'm doing I'm doing a fun little little dive on him where I'm comparing uh, Julian's freshman year to Tari Easton's freshman year at Cincinnati, and there's some stark similarities. And again, everyone knows how much I love Tari Easton, so it's probably not going to take me much longer to fall in love with Julian Phillips. And if he ends up, Nick, he he might believe in himself so much that if he's slated to go like late first, early second he might come back for a second year and end up being a uh, lottery-level talent, if not higher. We shall see. I certainly would hope that he comes out this year just because I would like to see him in the NBA sooner rather than later. But for sure. he is one of those prospects where if a few more things go right, you could see them jumping up a lot if they return to school. And you know sometimes that doesn't work out, but other times you get the Jaden Ivey, Benedict Matherin experience where you go from late first-round guy to, you know, both of those guys going in the top seven. Yeah, I mean, you sometimes you got to bet on yourself. If you 
you know that you have what it takes, but you gotta you gotta be in a system. I think kind of similar to Tennessee, where you know that the coaches are gonna blow smoke up your butt and tell you, hey, if you come back here, you're gonna be a top ten guy. Um, if he says that, you know that he means it. So I think that similar to Tari's, and if Julian Phillips did come back for a sophomore year, you would probably see similar type output. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap this one up? Um, no, just again, want to say that this was a, it was a fun exercise. And I think that as much, as much as it was fun, there were some key takeaways in comparing the differences in positional depth and also what the NBA is looking for at each position now too. So it was a fun exercise, but still was able to walk away from it with a little bit more uh, insight between both of the draft classes. All right. Well, he is Stephen Glaspie. You can find him on Twitter at Stephen G Hoops, and you can also find his written work on NoSeilingsNBA.com. In addition to his lock draft, which we talked about on this episode, Stephen also had a piece coming out on Monday about Jalen Slauson. So definitely check that one out as well. If you haven't yet, you can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoSeilingsNBA.com as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback about the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.